0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, And today we're talking about the readings for the 13th Sunday in Ordinary Time, June 27th, 2021. The long form of our gospel today provides us with two miracles which mark sandwiches together, the raising of Jairus' daughter and the healing of the hemorrhaging woman. Contextualizing these stories in light of Levitical purity laws reveals a deeper message lingering below the surface. Not only does Jesus desire to heal us physically, but he also wants to restore us spiritually. At the end of the day, the story serves as a spiritual summons to see life's happenings through the eyes of him who banishes illness and reverses death forever. Welcome back to Sunday Dive. We get a double feature in our gospel today. We get two healings, and that is if you are lucky enough to read the uh, first option, the full option of gospel readings for the 13th Sunday in Ordinary Time. It is not unusual when you have a long gospel, uh, which is uh, the case here for the 13th Sunday in Ordinary Time, to get a, uh, an option B, which pairs down the gospel reading. So our option A, the full gospel reading, is Mark chapter 5, 21 through 43. As you can see, pretty long, some 22 verses um so the shorter option cuts out one of the miracle stories and who wants to do that? I mean I'm no judgment on your priest or pastor if they read the shorter version but as you know if you've listened to this podcast long enough we don't re- we don't read the shorter versions. We we go for the the full the full you know five course or whatever However big meal that our Lord feeds us in His beautiful words in the scriptures. And quick note, I feel like I say that every time I start a podcast episode, but this is a quick note, just a little a little exciting uh, kind of milestone. We're at episode 70. This is episode seventy. So maybe episode seventy five is a bigger milestone, but episode seventy seems pretty exciting to me. So thank you all for having listened. Um, and please continue to recommend the podcast. If you feel so inclined to your family and friends, thanks again to those of you who have recently reviewed the podcast on Apple podcasts, please continue to do that. If you haven't already. And, uh, if you have a a few minutes, please be sure to leave a comment on your review as well. Let's begin, as usual, reading our gospel together. I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version, and we are looking at Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and besought him, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a flow of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I shall be made well. And immediately the hemorrhage ceased and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone forth from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, he saw a tumult and people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why do you make a tumult and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and walked. She was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Mark chapter 5. Verses 21 through 43, again, a long gospel reading, but who can resist this beautiful double feature, which the church gives us here in Mark's gospel. It's interesting how Mark gives us these two miracles. They're sandwiched together. And um, there's some ways in which they are similar, and there's some ways in which they are different. Before we get into comparing and contrasting the two, before we get into the specific details of each of the miracle stories, let's contextualize our setting. Um, Jesus is back from the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So last week, we looked at the calming of the storm, and we said they were passing from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. And um, they were passing from the Western Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee over to the Eastern Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And what we kind of skipped over in the interlude here in Mark's gospel um, in the lectionary, are some exorcisms and, and, uh, and uh, powerful things that Jesus does on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. So as it says in the beginning of our gospel here at verse 21 of chapter five, Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side. And when he comes to the other side, again, a great crowd gathers about him. Remember, we said that last week we found Jesus in the boat, teaching from the boat on the Sea of Galilee for a couple reasons. One, because the crowd is so large that his safety is possibly in jeopardy. And two, because the crowd is so large, he uses the natural acoustics provided by the water of the sea of Galilee in order to teach this large crowd. Okay. So, he's uh, frequently, it appears, if you're paying attention as you read through the gospel, now in this point in Jesus's public ministry, he's frequently accompanied by large crowds. And we see this once more. He passes back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and it appears that he hasn't even quite made it far from the shoreline before he's getting uh, pressed upon by a crowd. So, it says, he crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. So he hasn't really even made his way uh, inland very far, if, if at all, he might still be on the shoreline when a great crowd gathers about him, okay? And we're immediately introduced by Mark to one of the members of this crowd. It's a man named Jairus, okay? And we're told that he is one of the rulers of the synagogue. What does that mean? Now, it doesn't mean that he was one of the priests of the synagogue, but it meant that he was a lay person who had a role in the synagogue that could have been leading synagogue worship, some facet of the weekly synagogue service, Service, or that could mean um, doing something like being like the synagogue business manager, or something like that. Um, but I guess, I suppose, perhaps at the risk of um, of kind of demeaning the the, uh, the the Jewish tradition and Jewish lifestyle, we could possibly say that Jairus was like uh, like a church staff, like lay a lay ecclesial minister or something like that in the synagogue, okay? Why is this important though? Because when we encounter, for the most part, people in the gospels who are of Jewish leadership, in general, they are hostile and opposed to our Lord. But here we find someone in Jewish leadership, who is not hostile to our Lord, who is not opposed to our Lord. In fact, he puts aside in many ways, if we read between the lines, he puts aside his own reputation in order to seek out Jesus for the sake of his daughter. All right. He puts aside his own reputation in order to seek out Jesus for the sake of his daughter. So not only does he seek our Lord out, but we're even told he falls at his feet, okay? So we get an image of this man who's very, very distraught at the sickness of his daughter um, by the fact that he's, falling on his feet in a way, begging our Lord. But also um, it it doesn't only indicate the, the depth of the man's sorrow, but it also indicates the depth of his respect for our Lord, right? He's paying him a certain level of homage and we need to take note of this and make sure we are doing the same thing as well. And what does he say to Jesus? My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So that she may be made well and live. Before we get any farther into this, I wanna look at some of the similarities and the differences between our two miracle stories because we're gonna start to unpack some of the details in this first story, which lend to some of the uh, similarities, but also lend to some of the differences between the two stories. So again, we get a double feature here of miracles in our gospel, and there's some similarities and some differences. We can compare and contrast them. So both of these stories, in both of these stories, we have a person who falls at the feet of Jesus, okay? Desiring to be saved. In fact, the same word is used in both situations. Um, it's It's translated typically desiring to be made well, but the the uh, the depth of the meaning implies not only like physical wellness, but it implies something more robust. So, the Greek word is sozo, which can be translated as, a, as I've implied, saved. So, both in, in both stories, we have someone falling at the feet of Jesus, we have someone desiring to be made well, to be saved, according to that Greek word sozo. And interestingly enough, we also have. Um, the similarity of 12 years, okay? If you were paying attention when we initially read the gospel, you may have picked up on that. So how old is the little girl? We see this at the end of our story. She's 12 years old. How long has the woman been suffering from a flow of blood? For 12 years, okay? Now, those are the similarities, but what are the differences? There are some stark differences here. In our first story, we have a man who is coming to our Lord to beseech him, for the sake of his daughter. In our second story, we have a woman coming to Jesus, okay? And although we know ontologically and as it should be, men and women have equal dignity, right? In the first century, this was not always the case, okay? And so we're going to find this these uh, dissimilarities um, continue uh, in our our looking at the details of the story. So we have man versus woman, if you will. Um, The the man in our first story has status in the Jewish world. He has status in the synagogue. The woman is quite the opposite, okay? We're gonna get into this when we delve into her story in particular, but she is ritually impure and unclean, which um, precludes her, from participating in the synagogue, okay? So the man has a place of status in the synagogue. The woman is um, uh, banned from the synagogue, okay? The man here is likely rich, okay? We can uh, we can assume this, uh, make an educated guess that he's rich because of his status, but scholars will also kind of read between the lines of some of the details. For example, it appears that when Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, he goes to the uh, the room of his daughter as if uh, Jairus's daughter has his own has her own room. Okay, this would indicate a large home. It was not usual in the first century for one person, especially a child, to have their own room. Okay, um, so it would make sense that Jairus is rich here. The woman, in much the same vein, uh, but opposite, appears to be poor. Right? Where do we get this? She has suffered much under many physicians and has spent all that she had. Okay? So the man is rich. The woman is poor. But there's a way in which their situation is kind of turned topsy-turvy. With the man's situation, in Jairus's situation, the crowd is a liability to his daughter being healed, to the miracle that he was requesting. In other words, the crowd is slowing down the miracle. It's preventing the miracle in some ways. But for the woman, the crowd is facilitating the miracle because of the anonymity that it provides. Now that anonymity is broken when Jesus cries out who touched my garment and she admits to it, and they have this beautiful moment, but nonetheless, the crowd facilitates this healing, and this is where the 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 kind of uh, uniformity of theme breaks down, and we see um, the poor being held up over the rich. Now, does that mean that Jesus completely overlooks Jairus in his need? No, indeed, he does not. He still uh, fulfills his need, right? He still Performs this miracle, um, but it requires a little more faith on his part. And in a way that God can only do, he uses this greater evil of the little girl's death versus simply her sickness to bring uh, more good and beauty and glory out of it, right? Because he does not just heal her from her sickness, he's going to heal her from death death itself. Okay. So those are the, that's a look at the two stories, comparing and contrasting them and seeing why we have um, Mark sandwiching them together and weaving them together in this beautiful way that they actually kind of interact with one another. Okay. So Jairus has come to Jesus and has asked Jesus that he, uh, that he make his daughter well. Uh, each of the times in the Gospels, and I believe it's three particular times that a parent comes to Jesus on behalf of their child, you get uh, you get an intensity in their request that is not necessarily present um, in other miraculous uh, healings and other requests for miraculous healings. This is unsurprising, especially for those listening who are parents, right? There would be an intensity to your own request if it was about uh your child versus simply about yourself right and in each of the situations in which jesus encounters a parent who is interceding on behalf of his child jesus uh uh he fulfills he he comes to he comes to their aid right he he uh he is is moved i think is the word i'm looking for by by the particular situation that they are in and by the intensity of their request. I think there's something in there for us to recognize. What is in there for us to recognize? That Jesus really, truly empathizes with the distress of a father. Jesus really truly empathizes with the distress of a mother. Why is that? Because God Himself is Father eternally. He is the essence, quite literally, of parenthood. He's the essence of fatherhood. And so in a unique way Jesus as God is able to em- em- empathize in a unique way with the distress felt by a mother or a father over their child. And that 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 distress that shared distress that empathy causes him to act. Okay. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Quick note here, when it says, come and lay your hands on her there, this implies for us a practice in Judaism of laying hands on someone in order for someone to be made well. It's always helpful for us to point out um, those those little details in Scripture that confirm the practices in which we which we find in Catholicism, in which we find in our own um, sacramental theology. Right, uh, many of our sacraments are mediated by the laying on of hands. Okay, and this is not something that was just made up by the Church. This is a uh, a practice and I- an idea very rooted in Judaism. Okay. So it was not weird that Jesus would lay hands on people. People expected our Lord to lay hands. And here he's even requested to lay hands, come lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. And there where we have in the RSV, the translation be made well is that Greek word sozo that I was referring to that has a much more robust depth of meaning to it. Uh, It doesn't just refer to... Uh, healing from a physical sickness, but it literally means that she may be saved. Okay. And we're going to see how this uh, points to the greater reality of what Jesus actually, the healing that Jesus actually wants to bring into the world. Our Lord wants to bring physical and even temporal healing into the world. By temporal, I mean like temporary. Okay. Um, (laughs) Healing that will only last for a time. Why do I say temporary? Well, for example, looking at ahead. Our Lord is going to raise Jairus's daughter from the dead. Is she going to die again? Yes. Okay. So our Lord does want to do that, but he also wants to bring into the world a once for all healing such that As we look forward, when we get to it in our gospel, and we see Jesus actually raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, we're going to see language in the original Greek that points to Jesus' own resurrection. And what does that do for us? It points to the fact that what Jesus wants to ultimately give to us is not just temporary healing, but eternal healing. And that eternal healing is going to come through his own suffering, death, and resurrection so that we can one day share again in his own passion, but also in his own resurrection so that we know in our own suffering and death, we are going to partake of life, the life of the resurrection, okay? Okay. So Jesus is not going to just make her well physically. He's going to sozo her. He's going to save her. Okay, this is when we get completely interrupted and the story itself is kind of interrupted. So Jesus... um, Responds to the request of Jairus, and we see this um, this kind of response when at verse twenty four it says he went with him. Okay, so he's consenting to the desires of Jairus by going with him. He's going to go to his daughter, and he's going to um, we we assume lay hands on her. But this whole story is uh, kind of jarringly interrupted with the introduction of the crowd and this woman a crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a flow of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments I shall be made well. Okay. Um on the surface there there is uh there's something sad about this on the surface, right? She is ill and she needs to be made well. But her illness doesn't just affect her physically. Her illness actually affects her spiritually, and we can even say sociologically, okay? Why can we say that? Because in Judaism, to be Jewish and to be a woman and to have a perpetual flow of blood meant that you were perpetually unclean, okay? So for example, we can turn back to, in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 15, and we can look at several verses, uh, specifically verses 19 through 25, that outline what uh, what kind of status you had as a Jewish woman if you had a flow of blood. Now, remember, I think we've talked about this before. The book of Leviticus is has its name, Leviticus, because it is for the priest's the Levites. Okay. So it's kind of the priestly manual, which is why sometimes it reads really weird. Like frequently people who try to read the Bible cover to cover, get to Leviticus and are like, no, not happening because it's a little bit weird, some sections of it, but also it's just, it's a little bit boring. It's because it's a manual. It's a priestly manual. Okay. It's uh, It'd be like sitting down and reading the general instruction of the Roman Missal or something. Some nerdy people like me periodically think it's fun to do that, but in general, wouldn't be very entertaining, would probably be really good at putting you to sleep. Okay, so that's that's why Leviticus is the way it is, but that's it's helpful in our situation here because we want to fully understand the agony that this woman is going through. So let's turn back to Leviticus chapter 15 verses 19 and following. It says, When a woman has a discharge of blood, which is her regular discharge from her body, she she shall be in her impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything upon which she lies during her impurity shall be unclean. Everything also upon which she sits shall be unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything upon which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything upon which she sits, when he touches it, she shall be. he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her impurity is on him, He shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. It goes on to say at verse 25, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Okay, so to have a flow of blood blood, as a Jewish woman meant to be segregated. Now, for most women, this was only for a short period of time, right? And then you were, quote unquote, ritually impure for seven days, after which you were rendered clean and pure again, okay? And when you were ritually impure, you could not participate in worship. So you were banned from the temple, you were banned from the synagogue, all right? What does this imply? This implies that this woman has not been able to worship for 12 years. What else does this imply? This implies that this woman is largely segregated, not only from society, but also from her immediate family, okay? We read that whole long section of of. Of the lists of impurities that uh, can be can be um, contracted in regards to a woman with a discharge, right? What does that imply? Essentially, this woman has to quarantine herself so that she does not render other people unclean as well. So she cannot be out in society. And even in her own home, she is likely segregated away from from most of the rest of, of her family, if she has family. Not only that, but if she is married, she cannot be intimate with her husband. And this has been going on for 12 years, okay? So this is a woman who has been tormented with... um. With, uh physical suffering, with spiritual suffering, with largely emotional suffering okay everything that we can that, that can be um, implied from uh, separation from worship, from society and even from family, even from her own husband, okay? This is a terrible, terrible situation to be in. And not only that, but she has tried and tried and tried going to all these doctors and spending all of her money to be made well again. Not only has she not gotten any better, but according to the scriptures, she has gotten worse. One of the things that I love about this story in particular is that because is that it still really resonates, I think, with many people, especially obviously with women. Okay, because as much as we have advanced in medical technology today, there still seems to be a lot of mystery around uh, around um, the, the female reproductive cycle, right? Such that many women, I imagine, listening to this gospel and listening to this podcast can, can kind of empathize with the situation here. Why else do I love this gospel? Because it shows us, uh, unsurprisingly, that Jesus is not a prude, all right? Um, We can see the way in which Mark kind of dances around the topic here a little bit. I don't think he does it because he himself is a prude. I think he does it because um, he's trying to be, uh, you know, uh, respectful. And also he's aware that our gospel is going to be read in front of wide swaths of people. Okay. But nevertheless, um, even though Mark kind of introduces it a little bit subtly, The topic is clear. Jesus understands her problem and he is not bothered by it. Our Lord created us this way with all of our our weird maladies and all of the things that we are embarrassed about physically, uh, sometimes mentally and emotionally, right? He is not a prude. He understands this and he wants to be a part of it. He is not shy about it. He understands it more than we do and he loves all of it. He made us like this. He is, there are so many ways in which our gospel here, we see our Lord's um, fatherliness coming out in very, very tender sorts of ways. Okay, so she, this woman has been suffering. She has been suffering a lot, but she is able to to scrounge up faith and to scrounge up hope. And we see um, some of the the beautiful hope that she has at verse twenty seven. What does it tell us? It says she had heard the reports about Jesus. She had heard the reports about Jesus. Why does that tell us so much about the intensity of her hope and the intensity of her faith? It does not. Mark does not tell us that she had seen Jesus work miracles. It simply tells us that she had heard the reports about him. She had heard that he was a miracle worker. She had heard that he was able to heal people from their sickness and she believes. And so she's going to pursue, she's going to put uh, what she has left, not in the uh, hands of physicians, but in the hands of the physician capital P, right? Jesus himself. And so what does she do? She's in this crowd. It evidently is a large crowd. Mark has been kind of hinting at this, but it must be quite large because she feels that the crowd offers her a certain level of anonymity. When I think of this gospel, um, not really intentionally, but what comes to mind is like, massively famous people are like rock concerts where a person is literally just being like crushed because people just want to be near them. And we get this when Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, pardon me. Um, I must've missed something. Did you mean to say that Lord? Um, so it's a large crowd. This crowd offers her anonymity. And what does she decide that she's going to do? Mark lets us in on her like inner soliloquy. What does she say? If I touch even his garments, I shall be sozo, in Greek, saved. If I touch even his garments, I shall be saved. Immediately, the hemorrhage ceased. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone forth from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Who touched my garments? And the disciples react like completely confused, which is hilarious. And I just love it because I. Definitely no, I would have said the same exact, there's a certain level of sarcasm in, uh, in the disciples response. At least I read a certain level of sarcasm, which I just completely love because are we not, um, do we not try to be sarcastic with the Lord at times? And then we're just, we fall flat on our face. Um, but also on a human level, I'd like to think that, um, the disciples could have, could and did kid around with Jesus some. And uh, and Jesus, he was completely secure in himself, right? Um, which meant that uh, sarcasm probably did not hurt his feelings, at least playful sarcasm. So anyways, I feel like we get a glimpse into uh, the sarcasm of the disciples and maybe a little bit of the kidding that may have gone around um, behind the scenes. Okay, this is fantastic fantastic and a biblical scholar whose commentary I consult in preparing the Gospels for Mark um, in his commentary in this section describes the beauty of what's going on here and he does it so well that it is um, it is not even worth me trying to paraphrase I want to read for you a direct quote from um, Joel Marcus's commentary, on the gospel of Mark. He says this quote, her dilemma is profound. According to her conception, one must come into physical contact with the healer in order to be cured by him. But she is unclean and her touch defiles. And therefore there is a danger that any physical contact she may have with the healer will annul his miracle working power and wreck the whole effort. And even if she is willing to proceed in the hope that this will not happen, how can she induce the healer to touch her and thus defile himself? Her solution is simple but audacious. Instead of asking Jesus to touch her, touches him. Her solution is simple, but audacious. Instead of asking Jesus to touch her, she touches him. And her touch, her act of faith, her reaching out is reciprocated what does he do? Immediately, Mark tells us, it's one of Mark's favorite words, right? Immediately. Not only is she healed, not only, we, when we read the story, we tend to think that is like the climax. And it's, in some ways it is. But when we read it and we're willing to admit to ourselves is the climax, is not the climax actually when he starts looking for her. We're excited for her that she's been healed. But the intensity is not so much the healing. The intensity comes pulsing through when she touches him and then when he whips around and starts looking for her. And why is the intensity there? Because is that not what we all want? Yes, we all want to be healed. Yes, Jesus wants to heal us. Yes, Jesus does heal us. But when he looks for us and when he looks at us, all of a sudden we realize it's not healing that we wanted at all. What we want is him to look for us, to look at us. And if you pay attention in the Gospels, People's lives are changed when Jesus looks at them. Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee and he saw two brothers, Peter and Andrew. He looked at them. He was walking along the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, James and John, and he looked at them. It happens all throughout the gospels. His gaze is life-changing And so not only is the power that comes forth even from his garments life changing, but even more than that, the power that comes forth from God wanting us, looking for us, and then locking eyes with us is what actually heals and changes us. It's beautiful because um, if you analyze the the grammar in our story, um, scholars have noted that when the woman touches him, it's the first time in a, in a whole series where Mark uses a finite verb. It follows uh, a series of seven participles. So as Joel Marcus translates it, he says... And a woman being in a flow of blood for 12 years and having endured many treatments from many doctors and having spent all her money on them and not having benefited at all, but rather having gotten worse, having heard about Jesus and having come behind him in the crowd, touched him. And he says that word touch thus gains extraordinary intensity as the climax of the string of participles. And yet with all that intensity, that alone is not the climax. What is the climax? When Jesus starts looking for her. Joel Marcus says that it reminds him of how St. Paul corrects himself um, kind of in Galatians 4.9. At Galatians 4.9, Paul says, now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. Now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, see there are many ways in which we can convince ourselves that our lives or our relationship with God has been initiated by us. No, God always initiates from the very beginning, right? From, from creation, but also from the fall in the garden. Adam and Eve hide from God, but what does God do? He goes looking for them. And it's the same God that we found in the garden looking for Adam and Eve that we see here looking for this woman and looking for us. But there's something to press into in our gospel. It's to press into the idea that God looks for us with the same intensity with which he looked for this woman. How do we respond though? Because he is omniscient. He knows everything, right? Mm -hmm. But he still allows for this immense amount of freedom. And this is, it's this freedom. This freedom is is the arena for love, and I mean arena in a in a specific way. I use that word in a specific way because, like an arena, like I think of like um, like a horse arena, right? It's it's this large round pen. That because of the the walls of this pen, because those are there, those walls allow for all this, this these beautiful things to take place. You know, if you've ever gone to a horse show and see um, and see how these horse trainers can make these horses do these amazing things, but this 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 pen, this 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 small wall, this arena allows for that freedom. Okay, so so the freedom the arena of freedom allows for love. So if Jesus was just like, uh, just pressed into his, his omniscience, and I'm not denying his omniscience, he is clearly omniscient. But if Jesus just pressed into his omniscience and then pushed his omniscience on others, we would not have this beautiful scene of him looking for her. But because in some ways he allows for the sake of freedom, a certain level of, quote-unquote, ignorance, we get this pursuit. And is that not what everybody wants? Everybody wants to be pursued for the sake of love. So imagine being pursued by love, love himself. But this arena of love, which is freedom, implies a response. Why? Why? because Jesus wants to be pursued too. When will we get this across to ourselves that Jesus wants to be loved just as much as we do? We sometimes treat God like, oh, he is he's big, he can handle it. Well, of course he's big and he can handle it. He can handle anything. But he's also super tender and he desires to be loved. More than we do. This is a mind-boggling idea, but I stand by the idea that somehow in a mystor- mysterious way, God desires to be loved more than we do. And how do we respond to his desire for our love? We ought to respond as the woman does, as the woman does. She does not want to leave Jesus saying, and how could you when love himself is like is spinning around saying, where is she? Who touched my garments? He looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had been done to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Everything that we've ever wanted is contained in a small gaze. And for those of us who find ourselves in the age of the church, when we don't necessarily have the physical eyes of Jesus to meet ours and to gaze upon us, nevertheless, everything we desire is in a little white host. And so our gaze in the Eucharist, our gaze can be found our gaze being the gaze of Jesus, right? So keep that in mind. Keep that in mind when we when we think about this arena of freedom, which allows for love and that our Lord wants to be loved even more than we want to be loved. How do we respond to that? Oh man, I haven't even gotten back into the uh the the, the wrap-up of our second miracle. So let's do that in the last few minutes. Of our time together. Verse 3:5. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, he saw a tumult, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a tumult and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. Okay. Why trouble the teacher any further? What does this tell us? That for most people, faith in Jesus and in Jesus's work stops at death. This is evidently the perception for people at the time, right? That Jesus's powers are limited by death. This is clearly not the case because what is he going to do? He's going to raise her from the dead. But the response is, why trouble him any further? She's already dead, okay? And we get a sense that this immediately causes Jairus to begin to be anxious. Why? Because Jesus says something beautiful to him. He says, in in the RSV, it says, do not fear, only believe, do not fear, I would say. is certainly a correct translation, but uh, one scholar translates the, the the only believe as keep believing. So that it, Jesus's words at verse 36 are, don't be afraid, keep believing. Keep believing, because he's had some sense of belief, Jairus has, but now his daughter is not just sick, she is dead and people around him are telling him, don't trouble the teacher any further. Nothing more can be dead, but what? Nothing more can be done, but what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. keep believing. Okay? And he pairs down the crowd. He wants to limit those who see this miracle. They enter the house and there's this large group of people wailing and weeping. Many scholars believe that these are these are hired mourners. Okay, this was a practice in first century Judaism. Um, their their mourning rituals, even Jewish mourning rituals to this day, um, can be somewhat dramatic. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, oh, it's so dramatic. I just mean that there's there's some level of acting, quote unquote, if you will, okay? And so such was the case in first century Judaism. You would hire mourners. Many scholars believe that's what's going on here. These mourners, as you can imagine, have spent a lot of time around death. So they think they know everything about death. And when Jesus enters the scene and says, why do you make a tumult and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping, they deride him they laugh at him. This is something to pay attention to and remember Jesus was made fun of. Okay. Um, uh, Unrelentingly sometimes. So we are not ourselves going to be uh, going to be saved from this. Jesus himself was made fun of the God of the universe who created each and every one of us um, and, and the planets and the stars uh, was derided at times. Okay. Now, The deriding is absurd because they're deriding the God of the universe. But do we not sometimes participate in this derision? Because what are they deriding? They're deriding the supernatural outlook. The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, Jesus is not saying you've been mistaken. She's actually asleep. Jesus is saying death is not the end. Death is a sort of sleep. There is something beyond death. That is what our Lord is saying. But they deride him. Why? Because they do not believe the supernatural outlook. They think their own perception of reality is more real than the reality being offered by God himself who created us. Do we not do this so often in our own lives? We say, I know what's going on here. We look at our lives and say, I know what's going on here. I know how how this is going to end up. Uh, I know um, what this is going to be. Usually it's extremely negative because we're not allowing uh, God room to work even in the most difficult and and even heinous situations. But Jesus is staring death in the face and he's saying she's asleep. We even get, I think if we allow ourselves to press into it, we get a little uncomfortable. Why? Because Jesus comes off as naive does he not like you kind of want to asterisk this footnote it maybe if you were mark but mark probably had more faith than us footnote it like but he didn't really mean that let me interpret it for you no he meant that this is not death this is not the end there's something beyond this I can make good come of this When we are tempted to think that God is naive, we must remind ourselves who created the stars. Did you? No. Who has the final say on everything? God. Who can bring good out of the worst possible situation in the world? God. The child is not dead but sleeping, they laughed at him, but he put them all outside. The Greek is ekbalo, which is the same term used when he casts out demons. Okay. So he is casting the evil outlook, the natural outlook out. Those people who have little faith, who have no faith, they must leave. He takes merely the child's father, mother. It says those who are with him, the implication is Peter, James, and John, and they go in. And what does Jesus do? We have a repeat in many ways of our first miracle because we have a touch, we have a contact. So the hemorrhaging woman was afraid in some ways of touching Jesus because it should have rendered him unclean. But the opposite always happens. We saw this in the miracle of the leper The leper does not make Jesus unclean. Rather, Jesus makes the leper clean. The hemorrhaging woman doesn't make Jesus unclean. Jesus makes the hemorrhaging woman clean. And it was uh, according to Jewish ritual purity to touch a corpse rendered you unclean. But again, is Jesus rendered unclean? No, he touches her, taking her by the hand. He says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And Mark preserves the Aramaic, not just the Greek or the Hebrew, the Aramaic, Jesus's everyday tongue, likely, here for us, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. And at verse 42, we get uh, the implication of this, not just proximately or immediately, but finally, the final fulfillment in the Greek language. It says at verse 42, immediately the girl got up, and walked and that greek word got up is anastamy and that's the same word that we use to refer to jesus's resurrection anastamy so so that, so that um, to say christ is risen in greek this is the 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 common easter greeting that you would greet one another with in uh, in greek circles like greek orthodox circles etc cetera, etc cetera. you say christos anesti Christ is risen. And immediately the girl got up on a stame. Now this comes after Jesus says to her, originally in Aramaic, kumi," but Mark gives us the Greek translation, little girl, I say to you, arise that Greek word, also is the same word used for the resurrection itself. Jesus's body being raised up on the third day. The little girl, Anastasi Christos Anesti Christ is risen and the response to that if you're like in Greek Orthodox circles and someone comes up to you at Easter Christos Anesti Alithos Anesti indeed he is risen They were overcome with amazement but he strictly charged them that no one should know this and he told them to give her something to eat This last clause here, this last verse, shows forth the tenderness of God. It's uh, one of the many occurrences of what's called the messianic secret in Mark. Sometimes it's called the Mark in secret, in which Jesus tells people not to tell others about his, his works, his miracles. Why would he do that? There's a couple of reasons. For one, because our Lord knows that his miracles are not always going to be responded to well. So for example, he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. Uh, later, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, it's going to be the impetus for his own death because they're so the, the Jews are so angry at his miracle working that they're gonna kill him, okay? So Jesus keeps some of his miracles secret so as not to bring about his death prematurely. Okay. And isn't that absurd? That's so absurd. It is absurd. Don't judge others though. We need to turn inward to see where we harbor absurdity um, in our reactions towards God. But what else? He, He charged them to tell no one. So this shows us that our Lord does not primarily use miracles um, just to show forth his own glory. Miracles naturally do this, but what is Jesus concerned with? Fame and the spreading of his message? No, he's concerned with alleviating suffering and pain. And what does he do then? He tells them to give her something to eat. Also, a concern with alleviating, alleviating suffering and pain, even the smallest ones like hunger. So many times, I, I I, believe, as I've hinted at, we see in our two miracles here in our gospel reading, uh, God's fatherliness. I was reminded of a book I read recently called Abba's Heart. I, th- I think it's by Neil Lozano. One of the most profound things that I read in this beautiful book was Neil pointing out um, a, a verse, a section in scripture that's really easy for us to gloss over. Uh, John chapter 14, verse nine, Philip has just asked Jesus, show us the father. And what does Jesus say? He who has seen me has seen the father. And so, so what Neil Lozano says is that the implication of Jesus's words is that when we long to know the heart of the father, we merely have to look at the heart of Jesus because Jesus perfectly reflects the heart of the father. And so as we read through our gospel here today and in general, and we hear Jesus calling people son, daughter, we see in him the image of the Father. And if we encounter the tenderness of Jesus, we are encountering the tenderness of the Father who loves us perfectly, deeply, and who, who spins around in our moment of need and says, who touched me? How do we respond to that? Because Jesus wants love arguably more than we even want it ourselves.